Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Is it me and a few friends at Starbucks talking about God? Is it me and my family out at the uh, lake or in the mountains doing church together? Is it me alone in my living room watching TBN or the church channel? Is that church? I can't tell you how much confusion there is out there related to church. I know of a supposed church, three people meeting together in a coffee shop, and when they do the Lord's Supper, they have pancakes for the bread, and they have coffee for the juice, and they call themselves the church. In my office right now, there are tons of books on the church. I've got the missional church, comeback churches, deep church, simple church, organic church, future church, the kingdom focused church, when God builds a church, the externally focused church, nine marks of a healthy church, vintage church, transformational church, the living church, and the deliberate church, and that's just on one bookshelf. Doesn't it make you tired just for me to rattle those off? And I've read all of them, (laughs) some of them maybe twice, and they're helpful, they're good resources, but as good as books are, I think that our definition for the church needs to come directly from the pages of Scripture. Now, last week, we saw Peter's huge, powerful sermon at Pentecost. It was a defense from the Scripture. It was a declaration of Christ. It was a demand to repent. And so Peter stood up and he looked those Jews straight in the eye and said, You've crucified Jesus. Repent. Be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord. It was a powerful message. And before we go any further this morning, the same message is issued this morning. So before we go any further, if you were here last week and heard the message, or this is your first time at Emmanuel, the call is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Call upon the name of the Lord. So, here's the question before us. What exactly is a church? The basic question, right? I think there's a lot of confusion out there. What is, an, what is a church? If you remember from last week, there were 120 that were meeting. God broke through in Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came in a mighty effusion, this mighty outpouring. And as we saw last week, the Lord added 3,000 to their number. So they went from 120 to 3,000. Something huge happened with the coming at Pentecost. And so what I want us to do this morning, and it may seem elementary... It may seem like, why is, why is Pastor Sean doing this? We're going to talk about the characteristics of a healthy church. And you may be thinking, well, you just did this three weeks ago. Why are you doing it again? Well, there's a couple of reasons. When I do expository preaching through the Bible and something comes up, I can't just skip over it. I've got to preach what's next. And what's next is the issues related to the church. Also, we need to understand something. As we go through the book of Acts, there's a lot of repetition. There's a lot of repetition purposely to show us what a healthy church is to look like because no church is immune to dysfunctionality. No church is immune to false prophets. No church is immune to heresy. No church is immune to backbiting and to disunity. And so you're never neutral as a church. We can't just put things into neutral. You're either drifting away from what it means to be a true church or you're drifting towards God's plan for the church. We're always reforming. So let's see how the scriptures defines for us the church. Because this is the birth of the church. What do we see right after Pentecost? Let's pick up in Acts chapter 2, 
verse 42 through the end of the chapter. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts." praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, I could give you a comprehensive definition this morning of what a church is, and it would probably bore you. It would probably be too overwhelming. I could probably pull from one of these books, and I'm not going to do that. What I want us to do is I want us to look at two things that a church is and five things that a church does. Because there's a being element to the church. The church, first of all, is who we are. What is a church in its being? And then once we figure out who we are, what do we do? So two things of who we are, five things of what we do, and they both emerge directly from this church. Now, the word church does not necessarily show up here in this text. The word church comes from the word ekklesia. It's it's the Greek word ekklesia, the called out ones. A church are people who've been called out of something. What does Peter tell us? In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So a church is a people who've been called out of something. We've been called out of darkness into God's light. Now this may seem very elementary, but I'm going to say it anyway. Here's the first thing that a church is. And afterwards you may be being like, well, that's, that's pretty obvious, Sean. Here's the first thing. A church is made up of saved people. Saved people. A church is made up of Christians. Now, last week, Peter's call here was to repent, believe in Jesus, call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. For two promises, the forgiveness of all of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so the church is made up of those who have repented of their sins, those who have called upon the name of the Lord, those whose sins have been forgiven, those who have the Holy Spirit living in them. But here's the problem. And why do I spend a little time talking about this? There are a lot of churches that think they're churches, but they may not have saved people in them at all. They may actually have a pastor. They may actually call themselves a church. People may show up every Sunday, but they may not be saved. They may not have truly been born again. So a church can't be a church unless it's an assembly of saved people. Now, we'll talk a little bit about this later on, but we just have to, we have to let that out of the table here. The church is made up of saved people, people who have trusted Christ alone for salvation. It cannot be a church unless people are saved believers. But here's the second identifying marker of what a church is. It's a group of saved people, people who've been called out of darkness into his light. But it's also, number two, a baptized people. Look at verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people got baptized. Now, how did this happen? Did it happen all at once? Did it happen over a period of days? The text doesn't really tell us. All we know is that this group of people got baptized. Now, let me stop and talk about baptism because there seems to be a lot of confusion in our world as well. We are a Baptist church. 
And let me just lay the cards out on the table. This is how we understand baptism as Emmanuel Baptist Church. The Greek word baptizo, where we get our word baptism, means to dunk, to plunge, to immerse under the water. So we practice baptism by dunking them under the water. Now, the reason we do this is because it's a picture of the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is the, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. So when you stand in the waters of baptism, you are visually picturing the gospel. You're picturing the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. So you're putting on display to the world the gospel. But also, it's a, it's a picture of an internal reality. If you've been called out of darkness into light, if you were once dead and you're now alive, baptism says, I've died to my old self. My old self has been buried. My old self has died and I've risen to new life in Christ. As a matter of fact, um, Paul says that in Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism and death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, you may be asking the question, what's the big deal about baptism? Why were they so urgent to baptize 3,000 people right then? Well, the apostles were only doing what Jesus had commanded them to do. What did Jesus command them to do in the Great Commission? I probably don't even need to put the Great Commission up here on the screen because we should all know it. Go therefore into all the world, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus commanded his apostles, he commanded us to baptize, and that's what they did. Now, historians tell us there was probably ample water supply. The pool of Bethesda and the pool of Siloam at that time could have probably handled the baptism of 3,000 people. Now, we don't know if it was all at once, if it was over a period of, of a couple of days or maybe a week. The Bible doesn't tell us, but we do know they were being obedient. Now, let me just say this. Baptism doesn't save you. If you're not baptized, it doesn't mean that you're not saved. Baptism is just a symbol. It's an important symbol. It's the first act of obedience that a person has after trusting Christ for salvation. And a lot of people balk at baptism especially adults that maybe were sprinkled as a child or maybe were sprinkled in the Catholic Church or whatever, and and they say, well, I was baptized once. Why do I need to be baptized again? Well, we're not asking you to necessarily be baptized again, and we're not saying that what happened to you wasn't important. We weren't saying that being sprinkled wasn't a big deal in your life. We weren't saying that it didn't have value. What we're saying is that our understanding of the Scriptures teaches that once you fully trust Christ for salvation consciously, you've made that decision, then the first act of obedience is baptism under the water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I say it this way. A lot of people don't like this, but I'll say it anyway. We're really not asking you to do anything that Jesus himself wouldn't ask you to do. Jesus was baptized. Jesus commanded us to baptize. The apostles baptized. So let me just say it like I said last week. If you've never been baptized by dunking, by immersion, under the water, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, come see me after the service. Make an appointment with me. We want to talk with you about following the Lord in believers' baptism. So that's what a church is. We are a, a congregation, a family a group of baptized believers who have trusted Christ for salvation. Our sins have been forgiven. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're a body of baptized believers. But what does a church do? What do we do? Well, there's five things that we see the early church doing, and I think they're models for what we do as a church. 
Now remember, the church is not a building. The church is the people. You can meet anywhere to be a church. If, if, if God were to strip away this building and a, and a tornado came and, and destroyed this place, would we cease to be the church? Well, we can't be a church anymore because we don't have a building. What would we do? We'd go maybe meet under a tree. Go meet in a house. Go meet in a barn. It doesn't matter where we meet. It's who we are. And a church is defined by what we do. So what we're going to see here is what the early church did, and I hope that we can see it as a model for what we do as a church. So let's look at these five characteristics of what a church does. First of all, a church has a devotion to sound teaching. Notice what Luke writes there, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We've seen that word devoted before. It shows up in chapter 1 when they were talking about prayer. It'll show up again in chapter 4 when it's talking about prayer. This word devoted means they had a passion for it. They were diligently pursuing it. It was their priority. They were, they were diligent. They were persevering in what? The apostles' teaching. Present tense action. They were continually giving themselves to the teaching. And you may say, well, why all the teaching? Why does Emmanuel spend so much time on the Bible? I mean, why does Pastor Sean stand up here for 40 minutes and just talk about the Bible? How come he can't just tell us these little pop psychology, uh, little steps for living? Why do we have to get into the Bible? And how come in my growth group, we always talk about the Bible? And how come everything's about the Bible? Why are we such a Bible people? Well, we're a Bible people because it's the Bible and we got to believe it. But also we're a Bible people because the early church devoted themselves. They sat at the apostles' feet to receive teaching, teaching. We see it modeled here, but what does the Bible tell us about itself? Do you realize that the Bible is inherently the word of God? What does the Bible say about itself? Let me just give you a few verses here, what the Bible says about itself. 2 Peter 3.18 But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. How do you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus? You grow through studying the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The scriptures breathed out. It's God's very breath. Acts 17.11 Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with what? All eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Does that describe you? You you receive the word with eagerness? You want to examine the scriptures? Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Are you allowing the word to dwell in you? Hebrews 4.12-13, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God's word is living. God's word is active. It's the God-breathed word. It changes us. I will say this again, and I say it a lot, and I will say it until the day I die, or as long as I'm your pastor. Theology matters. It matters. And here's why. When the things of life come and hit you hard, you need more than just mamby-pamby pop psychology to keep you rooted. You need the Word. When the doctor looks you in the eye and says, you've got cancer, what's going to sustain you? The Word. When your marriage starts falling apart, what's going to sustain you? 
The word. When you have wayward children that are rebellious, what's going to sustain you? The word. When you have hard times at your job, what's going to sustain you? It is the word. When you lose your spouse to death, what sustains you? The word. And so this word is our anchor. And so the apostles were devoted, or they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. But secondly, a church is a community of loving fellowship. Notice what it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread. Now this word fellowship is where we get the word koinonia. It means to have things in common. We have a common life, common values, a common um, attitude, common theology, a common vision, a common mission. You see, here's the beauty of the church. All race, ethnicity, background, gender, all that stuff breaks down when God creates his church. There, there, There is no division. The church is one. We, we, are, we have a common life together. We have this commonality. Now, how was this expressed, this fellowship? It says they would break bread together in homes. We see in verses 44 through 45, they were sharing things. They had things in common. They were selling their possessions. They were, they were helping the needy. They were meeting in each other's homes. Now, there's something special about eating in the home of someone. I don't think we quite get this in our culture. In that culture, in that Jewish culture, To eat in someone's home meant that you would have a very intimate relationship with them. It was a very important big deal to eat in another person's home. It was was a way of showing that you really loved and cared for that person. Now, you realize this, don't you? That in Baptist churches, the only place that you can fellowship is in the fellowship hall. Nowhere else in the building can you fellowship. It's only in the fellowship hall. We've got a name for it. Okay? So if you step foot out of the fellowship hall, you can't fellowship anymore. It's only in the fellowship hall. Is that what we're saying? They were fellowshipping in their homes. They were fellowshipping together in wherever they happened to be. Now, some scholars look at this and say, maybe the breaking of bread was the Lord's Supper. It could be. We really don't know. But either way, they were celebrating the Lord's Supper. They were coming together in homes. They were breaking bread. They were having this common life together. They had everything in common. Notice what it says in verse 44. All who believe were together. They were together. They had life together. They had things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds to all as they had need. Now, there's another word that comes from common. Communism. That is not what is going on here. I do not believe this is an early form of communism. What is communism? It's when the government mandates the redistribution of wealth. This is not communism. This is not the government coming and saying, you have to give up all your property rights. No, this was a voluntary response to the gospel. They were a generous people that said, we see needs. We're going to take care of needs. We're going to voluntarily do this because we love each other and we want to take care of each other. Because you look at the rest of the book of Acts, there is still private property. They still did own some things. So it wasn't just this idea of communism. It was what I call gospel generosity. Now, I've said this before. If Emmanuel is doing what it's supposed to be doing, there should not be a needy person among us. There should be nobody within our fellowship that has any needs. Now that's hard because a lot of times we don't know the needs. We don't want to be vulnerable to share our needs. But if the church was operating the way it's supposed to be, there should be not any needy person among us. That's the way it was here. Whether that be a spiritual need, a physical need, an emotional need. Listen to what John says in 1 John three, seventeen through 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? 
Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. A generous people, a loving, a fellowshipping people. I can't tell you how much I'm blessed to be a part of this church that's a giving church. When we went to India, the, 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 the gifts that you guys gave to have all expense pit tra- trip paid for our mission trip. The, the ways that I've seen you meet the needs of each other, not just in monetary ways, but also in physical ways. Uh, the men's ministry has the truck ministry under Levi where they go help people move. It's kind of flying under the radar. You may not know a lot about what's going on, but they go help people meet needs. Last week when we helped the Arnolds move and the way the church rallied together, I, I've seen this happen in our church, this, this generous attitude that we have. I do not want Emmanuel to be known as a stingy church. Please, let us not be a stingy church, but a loving, a generous, a giving church. Notice what it says in verse 46. They were characterized by generous hearts. So number one, they devoted themselves to teaching. Number two, they were a community of fellowship. Number three, they had a passion for prayer. Verse 42 they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of breads, and the prayers. Now, it's in the plural, the prayers. It was probably a continuation of the temple prayers. We'll see this next week where, where Peter and John go to the scheduled time of temple prayers. So it could be the, the scheduled prayers together as the congregation, or it could be praying in the homes. Either way, they were devoted to prayer. It was their passion to be a praying people. It was their heartbeat. It was their obsession. We see this all the time in the book of Acts. They had a devotion to prayer. They were a praying people. And let me just say this, as long as I'm your pastor, that's a non-negotiable here. We will always have the corporate prayer meeting. Let me say what Charles Spurgeon said. I said this a few weeks ago, but I think it needs to be said again. I love Chuck Spurgeon. If you don't like him, get to know him. Here's what he said. The The condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. So is the prayer meeting a graceometer, and from it we may judge of the amount of divine working among a people. If God be near a church, it must pray, and if he be not there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be laziness in prayer. Fourthly, the church is committed to joyful worship. Look at verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Awe. That word in the original language is the word phobos. Phobia. Now, it doesn't mean that they were cowering in terror. It means they had a healthy, reverential awe at who God was. And I'm very concerned at the way that our, uh, the churches in our nation are going when it comes to the awe of God. Now, I've sold some of you this in smaller gatherings, and I'm going to say it again. You probably heard me say this, but there is a, a very fast-growing church in America, North Carolina, with a, a young pastor who's very brash, and on Easter Sunday, they decided to play ACDC's Highway to Hell as their opening song. Let me just tell you this. We will never have ACDC Highway to Hell here in Emmanuel Baptist Church as long as I'm your pastor. Last year, they played Running with the Devil by Van Halen. When we gather together for church, where's the awe? I think that's one of the things we're missing in our contemporary culture of church is where's the awe? Where's the wonder? Where's the transcendent majesty of a holy and mighty God? Now, this doesn't mean that the worship service has to be a funeral or that we have to be um, dreary. The joy of the Lord is our strength. You can be joyful but have this awe of God, the weight, signs and wonders and miracles and, and just a mighty power of God doing things in the life of the church. Now, they had two venues for worship. Look at verse 46. 
day by day attending. Your translation may say attending the temple courts and gathering in homes. Attending. That's the same word for devoting themselves that we've seen all through this. It's the same Greek word. They passionately, persistently, diligently devoted themselves to attending the temple courts in homes, two venues for worship, large group gatherings in Solomon's portico where they could hear preaching, where they could gather as a large group. And then secondarily, they met in homes where they could break bread, where they could fellowship, where they could pray. So we see those two models. They were not forsaking the gathering together as the church. What does Hebrews chapter 10, 24 and 25 say? Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So they met together in corporate worship gatherings and they met together in homes. But what characterized their worship? They were joyful. They were thankful. They were giving. They had the sense of the awe and the majesty of God. They understood the holiness of God. They loved to be together. They wanted to be together so they could hear teaching, so they could hear preaching, so that they could sing, so they could pray, so they could fellowship, so they could give. There was not a needy one among them. They were glad. They were generous. Look at verse 47. They were praising God. They were marked by praise, by worship, joy, joyful worship. That's my prayer for us. When we gather on the Lord's Day to worship, whether it's together as a big church or whether we're in homes or whether you're in a Sunday school class or whether wherever you are as the church, that we would be marked by joy, by gladness, by generosity, that we would be talking about the glory of God. We'd be talking about the wonder and the awe and the majesty of God. That would be upon our lips. Now, here's the fifth thing a church does. So, number one, they devote themselves to teaching. Number two, they're a community of fellowship where they're generous and they're sharing life together. Number three, they're a praying people. They pray like crazy. They're devoted to prayer. Number four, they are a worshiping people. Whether it's in homes, whether it's in a large gathering, wherever Christians gather to assemble, there's this sense of awe and worship. But number five, they're obedient to the Great Commission. It doesn't come out right here and say it, but what does it say? The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The church was growing. Now, how did that happen? Through obeying the Great Commission. They were out preaching, they were teaching, they were sharing, they were were living life together as the church, and God did something to bring the church together. Now, notice what it says there in verse 47. They were having favor with all the people. Now, here's an interesting thing about having favor with all the people. They had a good reputation in their community. One of the things that I I really pray that Emmanuel has is that we have a good reputation in our community. When people think about Emmanuel Baptist Church, they think that's the church that's generous. That's the church that's giving. That church has a great reputation in the eyes of the community. Now, we need to be careful here. We're not always going to have a great reputation in the eyes of the community. Because anytime you stand up for truth or anytime you make a stand on things, people can turn on you like a dime and there may be persecution. I mean, I think about what Kathleen shared earlier. In those places, you really can't be open about your faith in some closed countries. You may not have any favor from the government or the people. So you have to be the church in a hard situation. So, but we don't, here in America, we don't want to be purposely offensive. We don't want to be rude or mean or stingy or grumpy to give the community a reason to not like us. If they're not going to like us, let them not like us over a stand that we take on the scriptures. But let's not, them, let's not give them a reason to not like us just because we're stupid. You know what I'm saying? Or we're goofy. Or we're acting weird. 
or we're doing something that's just plain offensive just for offensive sake. Now let me just talk a little bit about um, God's sovereignty and salvation here. Look at back at verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So God calls people to himself. God calls people to become Christians. God issues the call and calls people out of darkness to light to become Christians, all those that are far off. How does God call people to himself? God does it through us, through our mouths, through our sharing, through our witnessing, through our talking about Jesus, through the corporate witness of the church. That's how God calls people to salvation. Now, look at verse 47. It says, The Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The Lord added. Who added? The Lord added. So God's the one that adds to the church. God's the one who brings people into the church. God's the one that does the evangelism. What is effective evangelism? Share the gospel. Leave the results up to God. Now, St. Francis of Assisi has not done us good in his little statement. Preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. Now, I know what he means by that. Have a winsome lifestyle that tells people that that you're a Christian. But I've not had anybody come up to me and say, man, you're such a good driver, I think I want to be a Christian. Or you're such a good husband, I think I want to be a Christian. Now, maybe that's happened to you. It's like saying, go play basketball, if necessary, use a ball. Go do elk hunting, and if necessary, use a rifle. (laughs) Preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. Well, we have to use words. There's got to be a point where it comes to sharing it verbally with our mouths, Jesus. Now, here's the interesting thing. They were not added to the church unless they were saved. They weren't added to the church unless they were saved. How many of our churches have unregenerate people in their midst who have come to be part of the church but have never been saved. It may describe you this morning. You may just come to church because it's the cool thing to do. It's an obligation. My parents went to church. I'm a Christian because I was born in America. I I get a free pass. I was baptized as a kid. I walked an aisle. It's just kind of a thing I do. You may be part of this congregation and you come every week, but you've never been saved. And there's a lot of churches that have that. The Lord did not add to their number unless they were saved. Now, here's the flip side of that. He didn't just save them and leave them to themselves. He saved them and added them to the number. It's not just this floating out here. Yeah, they become a Christian and then they're this Lone Ranger Christian that lives out here by themselves. It's it's me and Jesus at home watching TBN and that's my church. I've met some people like that before. They don't want to get connected to the local church. So Jesus did not save them without adding them to the church. Now, membership doesn't save you. That's not what we're saying. But we're just saying that you can't just float around out there without being connected to a local church. We don't often see in the book of Acts someone becoming a Christian and not being added to the church. Now, notice what it says there. The Lord added to their number. In the original language, the Lord kept on adding. The Lord kept on adding. And we see it all through Acts. The Lord kept on adding. And so we're here today because the Lord kept on adding. And the Lord's going to keep on adding until he comes back. So what's a church? It's a body of baptized believers who's been called out of darkness into light. That's who we are. What do we do? We focus on teaching. We have a life of fellowship. We are a praying people. We are a worshiping people. And we're obedient to the great commission of seeing more and more and more and more and more and more people come to faith 
in Jesus Christ. And we do this as a corporate witness. Do you realize that the church, when we gather together, when we scatter, the church is a witness to a watching world about the gospel? Let me tell you about a church that made a difference in its community, a major impact on its culture. It was Europe's largest city of about 3 million people. And it was growing at a really fast rate. And there was a lot of illiteracy. There was a lot of problems with poverty. It had a huge, I think one-third of the population was illiterate. And this young preacher was called to be the pastor of this church. And as he was preaching, the church got so big that they had to move out of their building to temporarily move into this place called Surrey Hall. It seated 10,000 people. In 1860, they had a building program. They completed their new sanctuary, which sat over 5,000 people. This new church was located in the slum district, right in the backyard of the warehouse district of London, where all of these orphans and single mothers and poverty-stricken people, illiterate people were. And God raised up this church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, this pastor, Charles Spurgeon, to minister to the, the city of London. Now, when we think about Charles Spurgeon, you often think about his preaching. He's the prince of preachers. But do you realize that his church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, made a huge impact on its culture? In England at that time, there was no national education system. There was no public education. There was a lot of illiteracy. One-third of the country was illiterate. So what did he do? He started the pastor's college to raise up pastors, but most of all to teach them to read. He started the Stockwell Orphanage for boys to help boys grow up to learn how to read. He started an orphanage for girls. It was estimated by the end of his life, 1,500 orphans had been cared for and learned how to read because of the ministry of Charles Spurgeon. He opened a, a, a house, this huge building for single mothers. For widows. In that culture, women had very little rights. And so if you were a single mom or you were a widow, you, had, you really had no hope. And so Spurgeon opened up this, this house for moms to come and, and to get clothing and to learn, and to, learn the, um, to read. And there was also a school in the back to school their kids. Now here's the interesting thing. For a seven-year stretch, Charles Spurgeon said this to his regular attenders at church. Don't come to church once a month. Stay home. There's not enough seats for the lost people to hear about Jesus. They just keep coming. How would you like for me to say, okay, stay home this week because we need more people, more seats for people to come hear about Jesus. For seven years, he did that. He had to tell his regular attenders, stay home. Now they'd come back at Sunday night, but he, it was an amazing thing. And here's the interesting thing about the Metropolitan Tabernacle. They made an impact on poverty, an impact on literacy, an impact on orphanages, an impact on, on, on literacy, all these things. The government of England, London, the government officials of London said this to Charles Spurgeon and his church. If you guys were not here, our city would have a major crisis on its hands. Because you are here, London is a better place because our crime rate is lower. We have better educated people. We have orphans being taken care of, the poor being taken care of. Charles Spurgeon, if your church was not here, it would be a major catastrophe in London. And it had me thinking about that. What would happen if Emmanuel Baptist Church ceased to exist? Would anybody even care? Would the residents of Logan County come and say, we are in a major crisis because you are no longer here? Are we making the impact for the gospel in being the church that God's called us to be? What is a church? Save people. Baptize people. 
a learning people that like the Bible, a praying people, a people marked by community and fellowship and joy, a worshiping people, and a people obedient to the Great Commission. And so that's the model laid before us, church, right here from the pages of the Bible, the infant church, the birth of the church. That's who we're supposed to be. My prayer is that we would be all that God has called us to be as Emmanuel Baptist Church. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning.